Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Fellowship Greenville Student Ministries podcast. This week, we're continuing our series called Run It Back, and we are looking in John chapter 5 as Jesus heals a man by the pool of Bethesda. Specifically, we are looking at how Jesus embraces the untouchables, both in the literal sense, but also in our spiritual sense, those categories of our lives that we feel like Jesus could never embrace, he does. Listen along, and we hope you enjoy this message. All right, everyone, you can be seated and welcome again to Fellowship Greenville students. It is so good to be with you guys tonight on this beautiful, hot uh, Sunday evening. You guys know it's supposed to get over 100 degrees this week. Yeah, some of you guys are like, praise God, as it should be, brother. And if you're in my camp, you're like, that's too close. That's too close to hell, man. That's just not right. Should never hit that much here on earth, right? Um, but I do want to welcome you. It is good to be with you guys this afternoon. My name is Matt Dinsky. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Fellowship Greenville. I want you guys to know that we are so excited to worship with you tonight. We believe that you are loved. We believe you have a place to belong. And uh, if it's your first time here, I just want to say welcome. If it's your first time in a while, I want to say welcome back. If you're a regular, I want to say Welcome to you guys as well. Holla. Uh, it's good to see you guys. And uh, you'll find out pretty quick we are all about Jesus here. We think and believe that Jesus is the source of hope and life in this world and that he is the one who reconciles us to God and offers true life. Uh, and so we study him. We talk about him. We sing about him. We are centered around Jesus. You'll discover that pretty quick. And so tonight will be no different. We're talking about Jesus. And uh, we kicked off this summer with a series called Run It Back, which is uh, inspired by some of our very own students. Uh, this idea of a series to go back over the, the past four or five years and kind of identify some of the favorite sermons out of, I don't know, I mean, yeah, well over a hundred within four or five years and to just kind of choose a select few of those and to bring them back for one summer and one summer only. Like this is like Disney's out of the vault, you know what I mean? Like it was gone, but it's back for a minute. So that's our summer series we're really excited about. We are continuing that series tonight. Uh, so go ahead and turn to John chapter five in your Bibles, John chapter five. That's where we are going to be. Now listen, something you need to know about me, uh, and most of you actually already do know this about me, is that I, I don't have a a, a, a love for germs. I don't, I mean, there's like names for this. Um, I don't love germs. Yeah, germaphobe would be a name for it, but specifically, specifically, as someone's coughing, <coughs> I can just feel them floating to the stage right now, man. Um, no, specifically the stomach bug. Can I get an amen? Like, Listen, I can, deal, I can deal with dirt, I can deal with yuck, I can deal with gross, I can deal with so many things. I can, deal, like, I can deal with a lot of sickness, but specifically the stomach bug is the thing that I detest. I hate it so much. I had a terrible experience with a stomach bug when I was in college. Uh, I, I'm talking violent, violent experience. This was probably back in, in 2010, and it scarred me. It scarred me deep, and ever since then, I've been, I have like avoided it at all costs. But as you guys know, I have kids, and I, it's, I know I'm springing that on you, and you didn't know that about me. This is probably not the moment to announce it, but I do. Um, and if you, if you <laughs> have ever babysat or, you know, led like summer camps or whatever with little kids, or you have younger siblings, then you know, like kids do not have an awareness of what they touch and when they put their hands to their mouth or something like that. And so ever since I've 
had kids, the stomach bug has regularly been in my home uh, every year, every year. And most recently, we had a, a bout of the stomach bug, like I'm talking two weeks ago, and, which shouldn't happen in June. Like what stomach bug thrives in June? Like this is a winter thing, not a summer thing, but we had it. Uh, we, come, we come home from the beach and like a day later, my oldest is complaining his stomach hurts. And I come home uh, from uh, like a student thing. I come home and about 10 p.m. he just starts throwing up. And man, like I... I I just can't describe to you like the <laughs> the trauma like in my mind like I am like rehashing terrifying memories of when I got so violently ill with it. I mean I dropped I dropped like 12 pounds in a day and a half. I was violently ill with this thing and I want to avoid it at all costs. And so every time my kids have it I just feel this thing swelling up inside of me. But as a dad there's this other thing that swells up inside of me which trumps this this fear that I have. And it is to love and take care of my kids, right? Like, you guys get that? Like, <laughs> some of you guys are like, yeah, me and my kids too, really. Um, <laughs> but as a dad, this thing like swells up in me. And it's like, I would hate to get this. I don't want this, but this is my kid. And two weeks ago, my oldest, Trent, he's six. He started throwing up at 10. He ended around 4 a.m., I don't know. But every round, we have this bucket in his room. And every round, he would just be throwing up. And I'd go in there, and I would just sit on his bed just rub his back as he throws up and he's like crying over his little bucket as he's throwing up it's like it's like your heart's just breaking and I'm just trying to embrace him in this moment and let him know like it's going to be okay buddy daddy's going to clean you up daddy's going to take care of you we'll wash your sheets we'll wash your pillowcase we'll wash your little stuffed horse like daddy's going to take care of you buddy like that's what I want him to remember not how terrified I am and how like like inside I just want to be like hey dude you got it you cool like can you start your own laundry that'd be great like inside that's what I'm thinking but I want him to know I got you buddy and and as simple of, of an example as this is and and a really simple illustration I think that what my son is experiencing on a much, much grander scale is the way that God often interacts with us. And I don't know what you came into the room with tonight. I don't know what baggage you've brought in. I don't know what history you've brought in. I don't know what you're dealing with in the here and now. But I want you to know that I think sometimes it's really, really easy for us to get it into our heads that we're too far gone or that we're just too dirty or that we're just too gross or we're carrying deep, deep shame and we think there's no way God would embrace this. There's no way he would spend time to clean me up. There's no way God would sit down next to me and put his hand on my back and say, it's okay, buddy. I got you. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to take care of you. And we carry shame and guilt and fear and kind of this mentality that somehow I have to fix myself before I can even think about coming back to God. And, and we kind of put ourselves in this camp of like, I'm not even touchable, man. I'm, I'm like untouchable. And sometimes we can live there, and you live there long enough, and you begin to think there is no hope, and there is no way out. And some of us are there. We're there tonight because of our lives, because of our decisions, because of whatever. We're there. And you feel far from God. You feel like you don't even know the last time you felt God move, or you felt the comfort of God, or the warmth of God, or the love of God, or whatever. And you're just kind of in this hopeless plight, and you really don't know what to do. And you can't really talk to anyone about it and you just feel covered in like disgusting, right? And I just want you to know tonight that I think very clearly from the word of God we see the example of God is to step into our mess no matter how disgusting. 
to step into our mess and to sit down beside us, to put his hand around our shoulder, to bring us in tight, to comfort us, to declare how much he loves us, to declare safety. It's going to be okay. I got you. And to give us a message of hope. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to take care of you. So if you're coming in tonight and you need to hear that, then I want you to hear that. And we're going to look at a story in John chapter 5 where this is like on open display, right? So let me give you a little bit of context about John and his book. John is written in two halves, John 1 through 12 and John 13 through the end, okay? And John is doing a few unique things in his book. It's unlike any other gospel. But in chapters 1 through specifically 11, John is introducing us to these scenarios which are demonstrating and clarifying who Jesus is without actually saying who Jesus is. John is playing on a lot of different themes, light and darkness and food and water and things like that. He's playing on a lot of different themes to tell us this is God in the flesh. God left heaven. He put skin on. He's walking among us, and this is what he's doing. And he's telling us all that without actually telling us all of that. It's very like play with words, play with themes thing. And every single story in the Gospel of John leading up to chapter 11, which is really significant because Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, and it's kind of like the pinnacle miracle that gets him in a lot of trouble. But every single story is revealing to us something about Jesus, something about Jesus that he's God and we're learning more and more about him. But here's the catch, is that every single time Jesus does one of these things, a miracle, a healing, teaches a certain way or whatever, Jesus is creating controversy around him. Because pre-existing, there was a religious group who had a lot of power in the culture. They're known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees have this tight grip on culture. They're controlling people. They're putting all these rules and regulations on people. The nation of Israel is like a theocracy. Their government was their religion. And so they have tons of power. Here comes God in the flesh and disrupts this whole power grab they have. I just want you to hear this. Jesus opposes corrupted religious institutions. It's very clear that when people manipulate or corrupt religion, Jesus is not about that. He offers hope and freedom. And Jesus is stirring up the waters quite literally all throughout the gospel. But every single time he does so, he's that much closer to death. And so Jesus Jesus is operating very literally at the cost of his own life because every time he does this, the religious leaders plan and plot to murder him just that much more. And so Jesus comes on the scene and the first kind of public demonstration of his power is in John chapter 2. His mom and Jesus are at a wedding. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding with your mom. But it's a bop, okay? I think the only one I've ever been to with my mom is my own. (laughs) Other than that, I'm not going to weddings with my mom. But Jesus is at a wedding with his mom, and they run out of wine. Wow, nothing there. Okay, I I felt like the shock, right? But I, you know, this is not first century Israel. I get it. We don't we don't understand the significance of that. But listen, a wedding was not a one evening and done event. It's multiple evenings event. And culturally, wine is a very, very special thing to have at a wedding. They run out. Jesus' mom comes up to Jesus. She's like, you got to turn this water into wine. And Jesus turns, I'm talking hundreds of gallons of water, <laughs> hundreds of gallons of water into wine. Yo, this party was about. And Jesus, this is his first public display of power, turning water into wine. Just one chapter later, Chapter 3, he's having a conversation with one of these religious leaders, a Pharisee, who's curious about him. And Jesus starts talking about water. He says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born of water and spirit. Nicodemus doesn't understand what he's talking about. One chapter later, Jesus travels up to a place called Samaria and sits down beside a well, which is 
water. And he has, starts having a conversation with a woman who comes and she's thirsty and he's kind of creating a metaphor out of this whole thing. And he's like, yo, I'm living water. And what I have for you, if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And he's talking about salvation, eternal life. And then one chapter later, John chapter five, where we're going to be, Jesus finds himself by a pool of water. So I don't want us to miss what John is doing in his gospel. John is using water as a metaphor, as an image to help us understand that God is at work in something as simple as water. And it's so classic Jesus, like he uses obvious earthly examples to communicate very complex heavenly truths. And for the first few chapters of John, it's water, water into wine, water in spirit, woman at the well drinking water, and now this man by a pool of water. And that's where we're going to pick up. John chapter 5, Jesus travels to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he enters in through this gate called the Sheep Gate. This is verse 1 and 2. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, which is like one of the gates to get into the city. Now, I know it's called the Sheep Gate, and you might be imagining like, like a little like wooden gate. No, no, it's like a stone entryway into Jerusalem. Huge city, huge entrance. They just called it the Sheep Gate. By the Sheep Gate, there was a pool. In Aramaic, it was called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So it's like this open air area. And within this open air area, there's these five colonnades that are roofed. They're somewhat weatherproof, but not exactly. And in this area, there is this pool, this, this created uh, area where there's water. And Jesus goes to this place. Remember, John is trying to play on the theme of water in the first few chapters of his gospel. And in this place lay a multitude of invalids. There were blind and lame and paralyzed. And many, many more people with many different problems. Now, you may notice that I'm about to read verse 5, but I just read verse 3. If you don't have your Bibles, look on the screen. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That's verse 3. Look, verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Where's verse 4? So there's this kind of weird thing that's going on here. Instead of getting into the complexities, here's, here's what I want you to know. If you go down to your footnotes, if you're looking at your Bible in the tiny, tiny font that I need glasses now to read, it will tell you, it, verse 4 is sometimes included, and it says that there was a belief that was commonly held in this area, that every so often an angel of God would come into this place, this pool of Bethesda, would come into these roofed colonnades. An angel from God would come and would stir up this pool, would stir up the waters. And there would be some kind of working miracle in this stirring of the waters. And whoever could get into the waters first would be healed of whatever their problem was. And so it was kind of like a lottery miracle system. That was the belief that this was going to happen. That was the commonly held belief, which is why there were so many people gathering at this place. So when we read verse three, and it says, in these, in this place lay a multitude of people suffering and struggling with the crippling effects of a broken world. There's blind people, there's lame people, there's paralyzed people. There are broken people here. 
When we read that, I don't know what you imagine. I don't know if you imagine like, oh, there's probably like 10 people by this pool. No, later in the passage, the word crowd is used. There are tons of people in this area. And they're all anticipating this pool getting stirred by an angel. They're all waiting on an angel. It's just a belief they have. It is a hope, man. And it is hanging on a string. And they are there just waiting. I know it's going to be hard for you, but if you can, for one second, step out of your current context, put on empathy and compassion, and imagine this life. You have no hope. Your family doesn't want you. You have no friends. Somehow you are broken. Somehow life is against you. Somehow your body is not working correctly. There is something wrong with you, some condition wrong with you that people literally have given up on you. There's no one taking care of you. There's no hospice service for you. There's, there's no one creating like a meal train via email so that we got to make sure you're taking it. There's nothing. No one's giving you hugs. No one's texting. Nothing. You are on your own. This place, the pool of Bethesda, is drawing people like that. They don't have friends, they don't have family, they don't have hope. They have heard a rumor that if you wait long enough, maybe, just maybe, an angel of the Lord will come and stir these waters, and if you can get in when it's being stirred, you're healed, man. This is the only hope you have in life. If you can, just for a second, pause your own reality and imagine the bleakness of living that life, surrounded by a crowd of people who are broken, and you are all competing to get into the same pool so that you might get a chance at freedom, at healing, at getting away from this. It is a sad scene. Jesus steps into that scene, which that in and of itself is the gospel that God would come and step into the mess, that God would come and step into a crowd of people who are broken and hopeless and have no way of healing themselves, of fixing their own problems, that God would come and intentionally seek out this type of people. Like sometimes we tend to think that, the, that the, 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 the mission of Jesus is the cross and the cross only, and somehow like on his way to the cross, he keeps kind of bumping into people that need something from him, and it's like, okay, let me just pause my mission and have this conversation. Let me just pause the mission and take care of this person. We tend to think that a lot of these stories are somehow adjacent to the main mission, which is the cross, and I just want you to know, no, this is the mission of Jesus. The pathway to the cross was not derailed by people who need Jesus. The pathway to the cross was people who need Jesus. Like this is how Jesus found the cross. It's because he stepped into the mess. The religious leaders got angry at Jesus, not because he came, but because he came and loved on people like this. This is what got Jesus killed. Story after story after story of God stepping into the mess to bring hope and healing and life and restoration. This is the mission of Jesus. This is a crowd, a room full of people who are hopeless, who have no one to take care of them, and they are waiting on a rumor, some miracle that might happen. If you can imagine how depressing 
that reality would be. These are the people that no one wants. These are the people that everyone overlooks. And just so I'm clear, and just so that we don't make the mistake of, it's called chronological snobbery, uh, which means that, hey, in 2022, we don't struggle with this dude. We're going to take care of people when they need it. Like, it's a different age, bro. This is like ancient stuff. In our culture, we take care of, and just in case we don't fall into that trap, I just want to put this out here. I think we are all, at times, guilty of marginalizing people that we find uncomfortable to be around, marginalizing people that are untouchable. They fall into some demographic, they fall into some category, they fall into something that it's really, really inconvenient to have them in your bubble. Let me give you an example, all right? This happens all the time. I just don't want you to think this is an ancient problem. We are guilty of overlooking these same types of people who need us, who need the hope and the light and the love that we have as followers of Jesus. Let me give you an example. This is a classic example. How many times have you been downtown, even in our own city? Like, let's just say you go to Spill the Beans. You and your friends are like, yo, let's go to Spill the Beans. We'll get some ice cream, get some coffee, walk the bridge, look at the waterfalls, take some selfies. It'll be great, right? You're down there. You buy your coffee and your ice cream. You go outside. You're sitting on the little patio. And then you look over. And you see someone who is clearly homeless talking to a group of people near you. And that feeling instantly comes over you. And you know what that feeling is. It's a feeling of inconvenience. What if they come over here and ask for money? That would make me feel awkward. And you're looking at them. You have systems, even subconscious systems in your mind, based on how they look, the the dishevelment of their outfit, how crazy their hair is, how unkept their, their beard is. Maybe you can smell their body odor from, from <laughs> maybe you can smell their body odor from where you're at. You look at their shoes and you see like there's holes in them. You look at their <laughs> you look at their pants and you see dirt. You look at their sh- you look at their shirt and you see sun stained. Like you immediately have these categories. You you don't even know you're doing, but you're looking and you're trying to gauge what will I say if they come over. Oh man, that would be so inconvenient. That would be so uncomfortable. That would be. And this person then goes from that group to this group, and the next group is a little bit closer to you. And you just know, man, they're going to ask us for money. They're going to come over and ask us for money. It's going to be really really awkward. And maybe just maybe you decide and you tell your friends, hey, let's let's go ahead and get going. Maybe you don't even say why, but you just say, hey, let's let's go ahead and get going, because everything in you wants to avoid the discomfort of having to have a conversation with someone who, what, doesn't fit into your worldview? You can't understand why they're there? You don't even know what to say to them? You wouldn't even know what to do? Do I give them money? Do I not? This is awkward. This is uncomfortable. And so while you're holding your $4 ice cream and your $3 coffee, you decide, let's just avoid it altogether. You know what I mean? You don't have to agree out loud, but do you know what I mean? You pull up to a green light, turns yellow, you start to slow down, turns red, and then out of the corner you see someone standing there with a sign. That feeling that comes over you, you're like, oh man, I should have, should have trucked through the yellow so I don't have to, what? Be confronted with the fact that there's people in this world who are on the margin and the fringe and people ignore and overlook. And Yeah, it still happens today. Very much so. The mission of Jesus is not interrupted by people on the fringe on his way to the cross. The mission of Jesus is people on the fringe while he's going to the cross. This is why he came. 
people in poverty, people who are broken, people that no one else in society wanted to deal with, are exactly who Jesus went after. Exactly. And for those of us who claim to follow Jesus, it, I'm, I'm just telling you, if, if, if a core conviction in your heart is not to try to fix this broken world in some way by showing a little bit of love and generosity and decency to people who society regularly overlooks, then you're not in line with how Jesus did it. It's just that simple. Jesus didn't accidentally find himself in this room, in this place. Oh, where am I? Oh, wow, look at all these sick people. I guess I should... I don't know, find someone that needs healing. Like, Jesus came to Jerusalem and specifically went to this room. And look at this. One man was there who had been an invalid. He had been paralyzed. Something's wrong with his legs for 38 years. This guy has been paralyzed for longer than Jesus has been alive. It's his identity. This is what he knows. It's his world. Four decades this guy has been at the pool of Bethesda waiting, waiting, waiting to get into the waters. Look at verse 6. This is one of the most powerful verses, powerful introductions to a verse. Ready? When Jesus saw him. Paul's on it. When Jesus saw him. A few years ago, I was doing some homeless ministry down in Atlanta, we were with an organization down there, and we were serving some of the homeless communities, and we asked the people there, we said, man, like, what, what's, one of the, what's one of the ways that we can love your people the best? Like, the people that you serve on the streets, what's one of the ways that we can love them the best? I'll never forget this. The guy looked at me, and he said, honestly, man, one of the greatest things you could ever do is literally tell them, I see you. He said, because every single day of their life, they're ignored People pretend like they're invisible. People walk on by because they don't want to be inconvenienced with the discomfort. And you go invisible for enough years and you begin to think you are invisible. He said one of the greatest things you could ever do is tell them that you see them. I've never forgotten that. Jesus goes to this place and he looks at this guy and, he's, and he saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Jesus sees him. And he can just tell, man, he's been here a long time. In the midst of your life, in the midst of your mess, whatever it is, do you feel like God sees you? I just want to let you know he does. I don't care what your mess is. I don't care what choices you've made. I don't care what decisions you've made. I don't care, I don't care the rea reality you're living in. I don't, I don't care how messy you think it is or how far from God you feel. God sees you. He sees you. It's one of the most beautiful truths of our faith, that God sees us in the midst of our reality. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd already been there a long time, and he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, this is such an interesting question because it's Jesus. Like, he's not clueless. He, the Bible even tells us he knows he's been there a long time, but if we're really, really honest, this is kind of an offensive question. Like, this dude's been there four decades. Jesus looks at him. He's like, oh, this dude's been here a while, boys. Hey, do you want to be healed? It's like, what? Bro, don't ask him that. That's like culturally inappropriate. Do not ask this guy that. It's obvious he wants to be healed. Why else would he be here? Why does Jesus ask this man who's been here nearly four decades, do you want to be healed? It's a weird question. 
Because Jesus knows why he's there. Jesus can tell he's been there a long time. The guy's not just there as a hobby. <laughs> like, nah, man, this is where I hang, dude. I'm good. Like, why does Jesus ask him, do you want to be healed? It's almost offensive. It, it is like borderline offensive. It's insensitive sounding. We're like, do you want to be healed? What are you doing here? I think Jesus asks him this question because Jesus knows that if you live in an identity for long enough, you begin to think that your entire identity is that decision. I think Jesus is trying to put a finger on this guy's heart. I think Jesus is trying to pull him out of this mentality like, hey man, if it were even possible, if it were possible at all for you to be healed, would you want it? Now that might seem odd, like of course he would, Matt, but I'm not so sure. Like I've had, I've had conversations with people, I've had interactions with people, and they are deeply ingrained into a certain lifestyle, and they feel the effects of that lifestyle, like it's negative, they're, they're struggling, like they'll have fun in a moment, but then have immense regret later, or, or they, they, they experience some kind of thrill in a moment, but it's fleeting, and then later overwhelmed with immense shame, and yet they keep going back to that decision. And you talk to them, and it's like, but, but do you really want out of it? It's like, I mean... I don't, I don't know. I don't know what my life would be without it. It's like you live in something long enough, it becomes who you are. I think Jesus is inviting this guy out of his identity as the like resident of the pool of Bethesda. Probably been there almost longer than anyone, 40 years. Do you want to be healed? Look at how the man answers. He doesn't answer with a yes. He doesn't answer with a No. What does he answer? With excuses. He says, sir, I, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and, and while I'm going in, another steps down in front of me. Jesus completely doesn't acknowledge that response. Jesus looks at him in verse eight and says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Like this breaks theological protocol. Like this doesn't tuck in nicely to like, wait, 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 but, but that's not how, like you're supposed to believe in Jesus and like say the right thing and somehow through faith in Jesus, that's when, like this breaks all sorts of constructs that we tend to think about Jesus. Jesus goes into the place where no one wants to deal with these people. Jesus intentionally seeks out the marginalized, intentionally steps into the mess he sees someone validating who they are as a person, a child of God, created in the image of a holy God who loves them deeply. Jesus seeks them out in the midst of their mess, goes to them and says, do you want to be healed? And the person responds with excuse, man, I, it's, every time I try, I can't even get in the water. I'm not fast enough. Every time I try, someone else beats me in the water. I, I can't even use these legs. Someone is stronger than me or faster than me. Someone knows how to do it quicker than me. I'm never the first one in. No matter what I do, I just can't. And it's like excuse after excuse after excuse. And I think it's why Jesus asked the question, do you want to be healed? Because I think Jesus knows that this guy has locked himself into a worldview where this is his identity and everything else is unfair and no one else is going to help him and he's bitter towards everyone. You stay in your mess long enough, it becomes your identity. And you actually begin to reject opportunities for help. I have someone in my life whom I love dearly, and we have talked about faith. We have talked about God. 
And they have lived with a certain mentality for so long, they literally cannot escape that mentality. I've shared the gospel with them. I've explained the grace and the mercy and the love and the welcoming heart of the Father, that they don't have to clean themselves up, they don't have to earn anything, that God receives them just as they are, that God actually seeks them out, that God desires a relationship. I've talked to them about it all. And their response to me is always, my life is unfair. That's their response. My life is unfair. It's not fair that I'm dealing with this. It's not fair that I'm dealing with this. It's not fair that this is my reality. That's their response. Now, <laughs> what you guys don't know about this person is the decisions they've made throughout their entire life, which those decisions have created those outcomes for them. Like deciding to do drugs when you were a teenager and running away from home created certain outcomes for you that are going to make life harder. I don't know if life's unfair. I think you were unwise, but you can't really say that in the moment, right? But they've lived in that reality for long enough. It has built up over the years now to where life's not fair. I'll never believe in God because life's not fair. It's like, but do you not see like God wants to pull you out of the reality of your decisions? Like you've led yourself here in some ways and God wants to give you a blank slate and literally redeem your life and offer you water, like living water. Man, you're waiting on an angel and God has sent his son. Like you understand how, how silly that's like you're, you're waiting on an angel of God when God is among you. That life's not fair. So I'll never believe in God. It's like, okay, it is possible to live in your reality, to live in your mess long enough that you can't see beyond it and all of a sudden you become bitter about everything. And that's where this guy is. Hey, do you want to be healed? Well, no one's going to help me. No one's here to help. Like, no one's going to look out for me. Man, this place is crowded. Have you ever tried to, like, crawl on your hands and drag your legs? But I can't get into the water fast enough. Jesus is like, that's not what I ask. I did not say, do you want in the water? Do you want to be healed? Now, remember, this is coming on the tales of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, that he is living water. Like, John is definitely playing on some things. Jesus is basically saying, or, or John is basically saying to us, Jesus is the water that heals, not a pool and not a well. It's Jesus. Do you want to be healed? Don't look for circumstances in life. Don't try to line up your ducks in a row. Don't try to earn it. Don't try to clean yourself up. It's Jesus. Do you want to be healed? And how you respond to that question says everything about how you view God and how you view life. Do you have loads of excuses about why you're not being healed? Or do you have a response to the gospel? Now, here's what's amazing about Jesus, because we would kind of expect Jesus to respond to him with like, hey, man, you're giving me a lot of excuses. That's not really what I asked. Maybe you misunderstood me. I'm not talking about the pool. I'm talking about me. Do you want to be healed? I can heal you. Jesus doesn't respond that way at all. Jesus heals his legs. This guy's been there for 38 years. We, we are talking the most advanced case of atrophy you've ever known. Like, it's not just that his legs don't work, and if, if he could get a proper surgery, they would. They haven't been used in decades. We're talking about muscle atrophy, like breakdowns of tendons and tissues and muscles and ligaments and joints. They are not supposed to work. It's not just that Jesus told him to get 
get up and now his legs work. It's that in an instant, every ounce of his reality is now turned over on its head. Jesus didn't just heal his legs. He somehow enabled his legs to work and build up strength to the point where they can walk in an instant. Like this is, the bigger picture of this story is salvation. This is the gospel. Jesus steps into the mess. Jesus sees people laying by the pool of hope and just waiting on something to happen. Jesus sees us, validates us, moves towards us, approaches us, and Jesus invites healing for your life. And if you respond in any increment of faith, in an instant, your whole life is turned over. That's the gospel. Now, what's amazing, what's amazing about this passage we read is that it doesn't seem like this guy really understands what's going on. It seems like his faith is directly linked to hope. I hope you're, I, dude, don't tease me, man. I can't cling to hope. That's not true. I've waited and waited for decades. Don't tease me. And Jesus tells him to get up, take his bed, and walk, and at once the man was healed, and he took his bed and walked. You don't see any grand movement of faith here. You don't see like a sinner's prayer. You don't see him like super understanding even what's going on. This breaks theological protocol. Jesus just decides mercy for you, mercy and healing for you. Get up and walk. The man gets up and walks. Again, I don't know what you came in with tonight. I don't know what you've been wrestling with. When you take the mask off and you find yourself actually getting real with God and dealing with your emotions and your shame and your regrets. In the early hours of the morning, you know, when you stay up really, really late and you just have such clarity of thought and you start to get real with your thoughts and your emotions, I don't know what you're dealing with. But I do know one temptation is you're too far gone, you're too much of a mess. And I just want you to know that God comes and sits down beside you, that he sees you, he throws his arm around you, and he heals. It's what God does. Jesus embraces the untouchable. My son's in his room throwing up all night. I'm sitting down, I'm putting my hand on his back, I'm rubbing his back. It's okay, buddy, I got you. I'm cleaning you up. Daddy will take care of it. It's going to be okay. We'll get through this. Jesus embraces you. I don't care how untouchable you think you are. I don't care what you've done in your life. I don't care what culture says. I don't care what society says. I don't care what label people have put on you. I don't care what label you've put on yourself. I want you to hear me say, Jesus offers mercy and healing and hope. You're not too far gone. And I think some of us in the room, it's felt like we've been waiting a long time on God to show up. Like you're waiting on an angel, but God has given you a son. I just want you to know Jesus sees you, he loves you, he heals, he gives mercy. Now here's the amazing thing. Let's look at the back half of this passage. Now that day was the Sabbath. So remember those religious leaders we talked about, the Pharisees? They, ha- they created a rule. They created a bunch of rules, actually. And they were really stingy about what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath. And one of the things you're not supposed to do is heal people. <laughs> It's like, oh, imagine that, like helping people obtain better lives. Oh, I shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. Another thing you weren't supposed to do is carry an object from one room to another. And so this guy, literally this guy picking up his bed made them angry. (laughs) Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man, 
who had been healed. It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take your bed. It's interesting. They don't seem to notice him before, but only when he's healed. Man, these religious people don't seem to care about him when he's suffering, but only when he breaks their rules. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, the danger of religion is we don't see people in their suffering. We only see them when we're like salvation watchdogs. Like, oh, that's, not, that's not what we're supposed to do. What are you doing? They get angry at him. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Look at his answer. Verse 11, he answered them, the, the, the man who healed me said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, well, who is the man who healed you? We want to know. Who said take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Look, man, I just want to let you know, like, if you think for a second, like this passage does not tuck into a nice and tidy theology, we don't, this guy doesn't even know it's Jesus and he received healing. God is dispensing mercy on people simply because that's what God does. Oh, you need healing? Mercy. Oh, you need help? Mercy. And if we're not careful, we can kind of get it into our heads like, oh man, you got to have it all figured out. You got to have the right questions. You got you to have all the right answers to those questions. You got to know your facts. You got to know your Bible. You got to know this. You got to know that. This man doesn't even know it was Jesus and he's healed. You understand me? You don't have to have it all figured out for God to work in your life. You don't have to have all the answers. Hear me, because people will tell you you do. Oh, you don't have the right theology? <laughs> You're so far from God, not like me. I know the answers. Like, clown, you don't. We're on a journey. This man doesn't even know who healed him. Doesn't even know who showed up. All he knows is he's healed. Man, these, these, these things didn't work for 38 years. They didn't work. And then I don't know who he just told me to get up and walk. You're worried about my bed? <laughs> I don't, dude, doesn't even know that it was Jesus. You don't have to have it all figured out for God to be working in your life. Be comforted by that. Now, verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Man, Jesus is being so intentional here. This is kind of rare, like for Jesus to heal someone and then follow up later, like seek him out later. doesn't happen often. Jesus found him in the temple. Now, what's interesting about this, this guy went from the pool of Bethesda, where like the crowd of broken people belong. He goes to the temple. Why would he go to the temple? Why would he go to the house of God? I think to worship God, like seems like a normal response. If God is moving and working in your life, Biblically speaking, the normal response is to give thanks or to worship God. This guy goes to the temple. Somehow Jesus knows this guy's at the temple. And he says to him, Ah, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And this man went away and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, look, my father is working until now, and I am working. So I don't want us to miss this. This is one of those things that John does. John is telling us that Jesus is God without physically writing down, hey, Jesus is God. 
Who has authority on earth to talk about sins? God. Who has authority on earth to tell people to not sin anymore? God does. Who has authority on earth to heal bodies and brokenness? God does. And in this passage, Jesus heals this man, meets his physical need, meets him in his mess, sees him when everyone else thinks he's invisible, and restores him, and then follows up with him later to say, now listen, man, I just want you to know, leave your life of sin behind. Like something's going on here. This wasn't just a physical healing and it wasn't just a sermon about sin. It was both and. But Jesus is saying here, by talking about the man's sin, Jesus is claiming authority that only belongs to God. Jesus is telling this man, I'm God. It is God who worked in your life today. It is God who healed you and gave you mercy today. It is God who saw you in the midst of your mess. It is God who saw you in the midst of your brokenness. It is God who laid eyes on you and saw you as a long lost son. It is God who moved towards you. It is God who sought you out. It is God who cleaned you up. It is God who made you better. It is God who healed your body. It is God who healed your soul. Jesus is saying all of those things in this one statement because only Jesus has authority to call someone out of the midst of their sin. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is doing the will of the Father. Do you have to have it all figured out for Jesus to work in your life? No. This man didn't even know the name of who healed him. Do you have to have your life cleaned up to a certain degree before God will step in? Absolutely not. Do you have to earn anything? Do you have to stack up effort or works? Do you have to earn any ounce of God's mercy or grace? No, you do not. They are gifts. I think it's so easy to feel unseen and invisible and hopeless and messy and covered in a lifestyle and feel so far from God and feel surrounded by this lifestyle and feel hopeless in the midst of it. And I just want you to know that at the core of the message of the gospel of Jesus, it is a story about a God who loves his children so much that he became one of them, he looked like them, and he stepped into their world, not to give them a ton of rules, but to give them freedom and mercy, to show love and kindness, compassion and dignity, to restore value that's been long lost, to remind us that we are sons and daughters of God, and no one is too far gone, and that everyone, everyone has a seat at the table. I don't, know who, I don't know who or where you are or what you feel or how messy you feel. I just want you to know tonight that Jesus embraces the untouchable. Literally, the person that society says, yo, we don't want them. But also, also like that area of your life that you think like, oh, dude, this is so dirty, so messy, so dark. No, Jesus embraces that too. He embraces all of you. There's not one thing that he desires for you to lock away. He wants all of you. Jesus embraces the untouchable. You feel too far gone? He embraces you. Puts his hand on your back. 
remind you of how loved you are, remind you that you're going to be okay, remind you that he's going to take care of you. You got something going on in your life and you just feel so far from God, Jesus embraces you. You got tons of shame going on in your life, Jesus embraces you. You've sinned like mega sinned recently, maybe even today, maybe even this afternoon, and you're just wrestling with like regret and Jesus embraces you. You've wandered from God. You haven't opened your Bible in years. You, you can't even remember the last conversation you've had with God. Jesus embraces you. You don't know where you're at in your faith. You don't even know if you believe in Jesus. Jesus embraces you. The mercy of God is for everyone who will receive it. Jesus embraces the untouchable. Jesus embraces the untouchable. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your son who works as you work, who sees what you're seeing and moves towards people. Thank you, Father, for the, <laughs> the Bible, the gospel. Thank you for story after story after story after story after story after story of Jesus moving towards people, of Jesus stepping into the mess of Jesus offering mercy and hope, of Jesus seeing the invisible, of Jesus restoring the broken, of Jesus healing the hurt. Father, I pray over this room of students, whatever baggage they're carrying, I pray that they would walk out of this room tonight knowing this, that the mercy of God is available to all who would receive it. And the name of Jesus is only a call away. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would bring many sons and daughters to you, that you would heal us, restore us, fix us, dispense your mercy on us in miraculous ways, that you would heal the brokenness of our souls and our bodies. We ask this, Jesus, in your name, by the power of your spirit. Amen.